Well, one of the questions they asked me was, for any amount of money, would you ever go against America? What about a million dollars? What about two million dollars? And they kept on upping the ante. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Jay Lieberman talks about his early childhood memories of the Cold War, as well as his long career in the U.S. Navy. He tells a fascinating story of how he obtained high security clearance in the U.S. Navy and served at a number of classified command facilities, including the 2nd Pentagon and the Fleet Ocean Surveillance Information Facility at Rota in Spain. Now, I know I keep saying if this was a magazine, you wouldn't mind paying a few quid or dollars a week. Well, it's true. I'm just asking you for the bargain price of three US dollars a month. And you'll also get that sought after Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you listen via Apple Podcasts, then do leave us a written review. It really helps us get new guests on the show and raises our profile. Now, this conversation was recorded as part of the Imperial War Museum North Voices of the Wall event, commemorating 30 years since the fall of the wall. We welcome Jay Lieberman to our Cold War conversation. Jay, I understand what amongst your you had an earlier experience of the Cold War in your childhood. Uh, yes, when I was in elementary school or primary school, as you know it here, we had air raid drills constantly. I was schooled in New York, so it was quite a bit away from Florida, but the Cuban Missile Crisis was on, and uh, frequently we had air raid drills where I had to hide under my desk or actually go find the air raid shelter. And I was 9, 10, 11 years old at the time. Uh, and that's when it really came to light that this is not a game. This is, this is real. Uh, and thankfully, it turned out the way it did. Yeah. And, and were those drills taken very seriously then in those days? Oh, absolutely. Because we did not know the full capabilities of Cuba at the time. And we didn't know the range of their missiles. So it wasn't anything that we took lightly. We had to take it seriously because we just didn't know. Because mm-hmm. I've seen films of those drills where the siren goes off and the streets empty. Was that really what it was like? The whole city would shut down? Yeah, exactly. Most of the time when I had those drills, I was in school. But when the air raid shelters went, uh, when the sirens went, everybody did evacuate. It was like a ghost town. Uh, it's just unbelievable. And you can still go back to America and in some cases still see the poles with this, with the horns on the top of the sirens. And the sound of the sirens just, the range was so great, uh, but they had them frequently so everybody could hear them and there wasn't any misunderstanding of what those were about. The other issue is in some of my schools locally, they had, uh, just outside the grounds, they had, uh, uh, missile batteries set up, uh, called them Nike mi- missile batteries, in protection of the area from any incoming missiles from the Cold War. Right, so this was an early anti-ballistic missile system. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. I've heard about these sites around Los Angeles, and in fact, mm-hmm. I've seen the, uh, there are some posts there with the sirens still on yes. in uh, central Los Angeles as mm-hmm. well. That's right. And we just, we just didn't know at the time whether what was going to happen. And we had, of course, America had experience in the wars. And uh, so we, we just didn't know what was going to happen. So we had to take those precautions. Yeah. And, and so what, what made you join the, the U.S. Navy? Well, when I, I left high school at age 18, and I went to my local college for a year, and I felt I wasn't getting my money's worth. Plus, Vietnam was on during the time. It was the end of the Vietnam War, but we still had a conscripted service, or draft as we call it. And I didn't want to have them say, you're going here. I wanted to have the choice. And so I talked to the all the different recruiters, and I said immediately no to the Army and the Marines. Jokingly said I didn't want to walk around like a, looking like a tree. 
So uh, went in and talked to the Air Force recruiter, misunderstood him, went in and spoke to the Navy recruiter, and he was going to send me away right then and that, that day. Uh, that was May. And I said, well, no, let's hold off until we finally decided on a date of the uh, 24th of October, 1973. Right. And what, why, where did you first serve? Well, once I got done with basic training and my initial schooling, I actually, and this was early 1974, so Vietnam was still on, I was transferred to a ship out of Rota, Spain. Uh, this uh, It's called the USS Simon Lake, and it looked after submarines. And the interesting point about that time was that was 1974 to 1976. When I first got stationed there, General, uh, General Franco was still alive. And so we had that era of the Spanish uh, uh, civilization and everything. And then he died in 1975, halfway through my time there. Things changed a little, but not a lot. Uh, and in 1976, I got transferred off of that ship as a normal rotation. Um, it's interesting because people, I think, forget that, you know, Franco was uh, a, a semi-ally of Hitler. Certainly Hitler aided his success in the Spanish Civil War. Mm. There was a division, the Spanish division sent to uh, the Soviet Union to fight against the Soviet Union. Mm. I mean, what was it like in Franco, Spain? Were you given special briefing as to how to behave when you were ashore? Well, it uh, the ship was homeported there, so I was able to live out in town, but just outside the gates of the base were the Spanish, the infamous Spanish LaGuardia Seville, and these are the the Spanish national police with the with the black um, uh, with the black hats, the, the, like the tricorn. Yes, hats. yes. And there was a story of an American Navy chief that was leaving the base. So you go through the gate, you show your ID card to the U.S. authorities. And then you stop for the LaGuardia Seville. This chief did not stop for whatever reason. Uh, so they just took out their submachine guns and shot the, shot the back window out of the car and killed him because he did not stop. Um, this is the type of power that they had at the time. When Franco died, a lot of that changed. And when I went back in the uh, mid to late 80s, they were pretty much gone. It was pretty much... A cursory of at the gate, okay, bye, yeah. type of scenario. But yes, in the mid-70s, it was a difficult time. I had to watch your P's and Q's. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you said that the, the ship that you were serving on was, was it submarine resupply ship? Or? Yes. Uh, the submarines would go out on their patrol and then come back, and we would offload and unload new missiles, new torpedoes, and we'd perform any maintenance work that needed to be done. We also had a, a dry dock behind us where the subs, if need to be, could go into the dry dock and do some work. So it, it was an interesting time there. It uh, was there for two years. Yeah. So these, these were hunter-killer submarines? Yes. yes. Uh, well, these were uh, some hunter-killers, and then some of them were long-range ballistics. Uh, they had uh, uh, at least a dozen to two dozen missile tubes on them. Okay, so these were Pilar there were some Polaris yes, exactly. um, submarines there? Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay, I don't pretend to know all my submarines, yes, so, but uh, I knew that yeah, one, yeah. mainly because the Brits had them as yeah. well. They, uh, they were all nuclear submarines, uh, so we had the nuclear issue, and because of that, I had to have somewhat of a security clearance, and of course, whatever maintenance needed to be done. We certainly did not want our uh, uh, our enemies to know that this particular submarine needed this, or how many missiles it needed, or anything else. So there was an, um, that bit of secrecy involved. Because you never want to give away your capabilities or your lack of capabilities to the other guy. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. Um, and so you were there for three years, did you say? Two years. Two years. Uh, I left there in 1976 to be stationed uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, during the 200th uh, birthday party of our liberation from, from the Queen. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was another intelligence situation. It, it, the place was actually called Naval Intelligence Processing System Support Activity. Nice uh, and punchy name. Though. Oh, absolutely. NIPSA for short. <laughs> um, so I was there uh, during the 200th anniversary. Um, and then from there, again, because of my high security clearance and my good service record, I got stationed to another base that um, P-51 
people say, well, how did you ever get there? I got stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, as far away as you can get from the sea as it, it, exactly, uh, possible, really, exactly. in Europe. Um, and um, it, uh, it was another two-year stint there. Um, they had, it was joint service. We had everybody there. It was uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. The highest-ranking naval officer was a two-star admiral there, and all the way down to somebody as junior as me. Can you tell me anything about what your role was there and what, what you were doing? Well, the whole time I was in the Navy, I was uh, a, a computer operator of sorts, so it's all different computer systems. This particular computer system was one of the very first ones in the world to be able to communicate to somebody on the other side of the world. So in computer parlance back then, we would take a paper tape and run it through the machine, and that would start, that would open up the communication channels between us and the same type of installation on the other side of the world. Uh, so we, with that, we were in constant contact with there were about a half a dozen of these sites throughout the world at the time, uh, including the primary Pentagon, as we know it, the secondary Pentagon, which we can go on to later, and some of the other sites. So it was keeping all of the U.S. forces throughout the world in contact with one another without going over the, uh, without sending messages and, of course, uh, without sending uh, letters or anything else like that. So it was instant communication. Right. And this was via radio transmission or? It was via the uh, the pre predecessors to the Internet. So okay. uh, it was all secure, uh, highly classified data that was going back and forth. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating it's, stuff. It's, it must have been an interesting project to work on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because... It was the up-and-coming thing in computers. And this was when computers were big, uh, power-hungry machines and cabinets that you needed huge air conditioning systems to keep the computer room cold. In Fahrenheit, it was about 65 degrees in there. Yeah. And we had to work in there 8 to 12 hours, depending upon your, your shift. And it was just processing the data and keeping up where all of our other... Uh, resources were and how available those resources were to, uh, to the U.S. military should they need to shift them in time of crisis. So it was tracking readiness status and all of that exactly. information that would have been really useful to right. an enemy yeah, in order exactly. to work out when to attack. Exactly. Okay. And how long were you, you serving at, uh, in uh, Stuttgart for? Okay. I was in Stuttgart for two years. Uh, in the U.S. Navy, when you go to a shore command, if you're single, you go there for two years. If you're married, you go there for three years just to make it cost-worthy. Cost uh, when I went there, uh, I was single. Halfway through, I got married, but I got my wife command-sponsored, which means the Navy paid for her from that point forward. So I was lucky enough to only be there for two years, and then I transferred out. And when when you were sent to Stuttgart, because you're obviously outside of the U.S., were you given any special training or advice because you're in such a sensitive position as to being conscious of maybe approaches from other intelligence services, let's say? Well, the security briefings uh, started when I was actually in Washington, the command previous. And a bit of an anecdote here. Uh, when an American eats, we move our fork back and forth between our two hands. The Europeans don't. And there's a story of during World War II, there was an American that was so in, uh, uh, so in depth in the German environment, you speaking to him and looking at him and his mannerisms were so German, you couldn't tell that he was not German until you watched him eat. He switched his fork around and that's how he got caught. So these are some of the stories that we get talked about. Uh, and, you know, they say if you're ever approached by anybody that you don't know, you raise the flag because you just never know if this guy's a good guy or a bad guy. And I, and I guess prior to you meeting your wife, being single as well potentially made you more vulnerable to, to approaches. Or were you advised just not to fraternize with the local population? Well, no, my wife was, my wife was American, but it is, they look at your financial condition. 
So if you're constantly in debt, that's, uh, that's an easy target. If at that point, uh, your sexual preferences, if they were not a heterosexual preference, they looked at that as, as a, as a point. Uh, if you were involved with, um, uh, with anything else, uh, any drugs or anything, again, that is a point that they can, uh, exploit. So they, when we went through our annual, um, our, uh, periodic security reviews, they'd ask you this, this, and this, and this. Not that they were going to go ahead and prosecute you for doing these things, but it's one less thing that they can bring against you, the, 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 the spies can bring against you. Because the commander already knew that I did this, did that, whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a recent interview with somebody who served on Polaris with the mm. Royal Navy, and some of the vetting there was was pretty similar, including That's political right. persuasion and, exactly. and, and, and those areas as well. Well, one of the questions they asked me was, for any amount of money, would you ever go against America? What about a million dollars? What about two million dollars? And they kept on upping the ante and... They just needed to know, am, am I at any point willing to give up my, uh, my, uh, my, loyalty. my, lo- thank you, my loyalty to America. And so, I mean, that's the briefings we had all yeah. the time. And it didn't stop in Germany. Uh, it went and continued on throughout my whole career in the, in the military because my very, very last command was an intelligence type command. So they wanted to make sure that I was worthy of it. Was that with lie detector attached as well or, or not? No, it was no lie detectors, but it was all written statements. And then they would type up the statement and then I have to um, um, sign the statement initial and say yes. And then sign what you know as the Official Secrets Act. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating, Jay. Fascinating. <laughs> um, and so what, what was next after Stuttgart? Uh, from Stuttgart, it was one of our big super carriers out of the west coast of California, out of San Diego. It's called the USS Ranger. And there I worked with the airplanes that went out and searched for submarines. And again, I needed a security clearance because of the capabilities of these airplanes and how they analyzed their data to determine, uh, was it a submarine? Was it an aircraft carrier? Whatever. Um, and I was on there for, for three years. The first deployment we went on, we were actually in the mouth of the Persian Gulf when the American hostages were released from the Tehran embassy. Um, so that was, that was quite a momentous occasion for us. So did you receive, were they flown by civilian airline or out or were they, so they, yeah. they weren't received on the aircraft carrier, were no, they? No, no, they weren't. But our planes were there uh, keeping a constant eye on all the air traffic in the area and escorted. Once the hostages were transferred from the Tehran embassy to a neutral embassy and then from there to the American embassy, of course, they were escorted out and our planes along with the other carriers that were there were, were part of that mission. Yeah. Now, my carrier wasn't the only one there and each American aircraft carrier has 5,000 people and about 100 airplanes. So there were three of these things floating around in the Indian Ocean, and there was another one floating around in the Mediterranean. So 20,000 people, 400 airplanes, and all of our escort ships were all up in that area uh, looking out for the Americans coming out of Tehran. So you weren't there for the abortive rescue mission? No, that happened before I got there. Right. Okay. Okay. And... So as far as the, the, the surveillance, I mean, mm-hmm. I've spoken to some Royal Canadian Air Force mm-hmm. crew who were involved in the patrols out over the mm-hmm. Atlantic, um, and they reckon that they could pick up any submarine, friendly or otherwise, mm-hmm. and because I was saying to them, well, mm-hmm. you know, the, the story we're told in the UK with Polaris, mm-hmm. as it was then, mm-hmm. okay, it's Trident now, is that it's absolutely invisible. There's, you, you, it cannot be found unless it's surfaced or unless it's transmitting. How true would you say that is? I will cough, cough, sputter, sputter on that one. Uh, because uh, everything in the world makes a noise. And that is how we detect uh, ships in the ocean. And that's how we can determine the difference between the new Prince of Wales aircraft carrier 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And the Queen Elizabeth II aircraft carrier it makes a slightly different noise. And that's how, that's how we did it. A lot of people like to say that their submarines and so forth are undetectable. Some are harder to detect than others, but we'll get them. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, no, I've, I've, yeah. I interviewed a guy who'd uh, written a book on um, the Dutch submarine service during mm-hmm. the Cold War, which was really fascinating because mm-hmm. I hadn't realized the operations they were on in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the different uh, acoustic signatures of different uh, submarines, ships. And he, he said one of the challenges they, they had was there was a, a Russian trawler that used the same type of engine that mm-hmm. one of the Russian submarines mm-hmm. used. And so it had, a, it had a similar signature. But it was really interesting as to how they recorded this stuff and then how it was used to identify. That's right. It, it, is, it is a science on its own. And the, the guys that I actually worked with that took the tapes back and analyzed it, they had to have a very, very sharp ear. Uh, it, it, it's the slightest change, the slightest cavitation in the water would be able to detect, well, that is that and that is that. When I left Ranger, um, no, a couple of commands later, I actually got heavily involved in that. And part of my briefing during the day was, and I'm going to use the British aircraft carriers as an example, the Queen Elizabeth II class aircraft carrier Prince of Wales. So we determined... the class of ship and then the actual ship is here, here, and here, and we're, we're able to distinguish it because of the noise they make. I mean, to give you an example, if you buy a car and I buy one, the next car off the assembly line, and they're exactly the same specification, mine is still going to make a different noise than yours. And that's how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. And with the, with the Ranger, presumably there were various exercises you were in involved in as well i mean what sort of scenarios were they looking to you know cover well one of the things that we were we did um on our way across the pacific we actually picked up 140 vietnamese boat people and this was like 1980 but they still wanted to leave vietnam for a better place but the exercises overall was possible an aerial attack um possibly sub surface or subsurface attack and this involved our submarines and our radar airplanes and all of our escort ships. Unfortunately, later on, uh, when the Middle East got really, really touchy, one of our American cruisers shot down an American, uh, um, a civilian airliner. Yeah, that was the Vincennes, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Because that airliner did not respond as it should. And they thought it was an enemy airplane. So these are the issues that they had, and they wanted to be prepared for those issues, and they wanted to make sure that we did the right thing. Unfortunately, in that case, it didn't. Uh, it was it was partially, why did we shoot down a, an airliner? Part of it was that they never responded accordingly. So if you don't respond, you consider it a hostile, yeah. and then you take appropriate action. Yeah. Um, so you, you were there also around the time of the, the Falklands War. Um, what, what was the, the sort of U.S. Navy's view of the Royal Navy's capabilities? Well, the, the Falklands, of course, was in the Atlantic, and I was uh, in the Pacific, I think, if I remember correctly. We kept a close eye on it because we are allies, uh, and we were there for support in other ways. But what the Falklands War did teach us is that aluminum or 
aluminum yeah. ships are, are not worth the money spent on them. We had a collision between one of our cruisers and our aircraft carriers in the mid-70s, and it was a, an aluminum superstructure, and it just melted due to the sheer heat. And of course, England lost, lost a ship yeah. due to that reason. So there was a lessons learned from that both in the UK and the US on how to build ships or how not to build ships. But we certainly helped out. We, it was certainly, there were lessons learned from both sides. Um, and because it was an internal battle between the UK and Argentina, and it didn't affect any of us in the US per se, um, we, we weren't really that affected by it. At the actual combat situation. Because yeah. I understand that some U.S. intelligence was passed mm. to the U.S., to the, the Royal Navy yeah. in terms of location of Argentine warships mm. and, and such like. Well, I'm sure you're aware that the, uh, the uh, Belgrano, the, the Argentine battleship that was sunk, was originally an American ship. Yeah, that was at Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December, 41 yeah, yeah, so, as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that bit of intelligence was passed across. Uh, yeah, here's the weak spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I think our nervousness was, uh, was around uh, the carrier they had the 7th of May. Mm. I think it was it was called, although it was quite an elderly mm. um, ship, as was, I think, most of the, mm. the Argentine Navy. But, but Jay, that, that's, that's been really interesting, yeah. that piece. So what was next for you after the Ranger? Uh, from the Rager is when I went to, here's a bit of alphabet soup for you, A&MCC, COD, JDSSC, DCI. Right, don't test me on that later. I didn't think so. Uh, in, in standard parlance, literally, it was the second Pentagon. So if the Pentagon had to be evacuated, that's where they would go. Uh, there was a lift, a presidential lift in the back of the computer room that I worked in, Um uh, Again, it was a joint service command, but if the Pentagon had to be evacuated, that's where they went. Uh, it's a quarter mile underground. It was built during the Cold War. It was built to withstand conventional weaponry, but we still used it because of, not because where it was, everybody knew where it was. Of course, you can look it up on the map, but because of the, the facilities there and we were in very, very close contact with the Pentagon. So when their computer systems were down, ours couldn't be. And we transferred data back and forth frequently. And literally, like I said, it was the second Pentagon. While we were in there, I was actually working that day. One of the other ladies that I worked with came in in a very high-pitched, shrilly voice. And I, not going to repeat it, but she kept on saying, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I said, what's the matter, Pam? And she said, the Challenger space shuttle just blew up. And we all thought it was a joke because there was no TVs in there. Unfortunately, it was real. But there was no TVs in our computer room. No, um, they were so deep underground that we couldn't put anything in there. We had that one TV, and that was with an aerial running up to the top of the mountain. So we played a lot of jokes with people, but it was a very serious place where it was. So was this Cheyenne? This isn't Cheyenne Mountain. This is somewhere no. else. This is in the Maryland-Pennsylvania borderline. Um, there is, it's about two mountains over from the presidential retreat called Camp David. Very, very be beautiful countryside. Better than the Lake District. Sorry. <laughs> God, you're fighting talk, Jay. Yeah, I know. From there, from there, uh, I went back to Spain, the same place where I was on the first ship. And that was the, uh, can I, sorry, can I just go back yeah. to so the, the the second Pentagon was effectively a backup data center, or yes. was it also offices and the ability to operate as as another Pentagon as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the command center was literally above the computer room. Uh, we had a cafeteria in there. We had medical and dental facilities, um, and we had a store of. Um, of military rations there that lasted, I think they were able to feed about 300 people for three months, all underground waiting to be used. Yeah, It was huge. And and presumably you were plugged into the NORAD network as well, so you were seeing what, what they were seeing as well. Were you, did you experience any of the, the false alarms that occurred? What was plugged into NORAD was upstairs in the command center. So when they had these exercises and these drills and these real-life scenarios, 
I didn't see them because I was down in the computer room below them, but it was certainly on a heightened state of alert in that, you know, don't do anything wrong. Don't do anything unexpected. You know, you're there, get the, make sure the computer is up and running the whole time. Because this computer was one of the same ones that was tied into the network that I talked about previously in Germany. Um, it was a computer system called Worldwide Military Command and Control System. So it was all tied in together, everybody talking to themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so this was the forerunner of the, the yeah, Internet. Exactly. Because it was designed to survive damage to any of its nodes and still be able to communicate with all the areas. Exactly. We had uh, all the four services there, the military services, and we had a lot of civilian contractors working in there. And uh, the civilian contractors were able to go home every day. But to get into the place... You had to show your ID card one, two, three, three times, walk through airport-style security, show your badge another time, and get transferred to another, transfer that badge for another one. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, That's it was an experience. Top, top, top security. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so, so after your work at the second Pentagon, you go back to Spain? Yes, a place called, another alphabet soup, called FOSIF, or Fleet Ocean Surveillance Information Facility. And that was pretty much looking, keeping an eye out of all the uh, military activity within the European theater. Another very, very highly classified place. Another one where you had to get your badge checked three or four times before you walked in. Uh, and that, uh, that was a, a very interesting thing because our commanding officer was wanted to try every new bit of kit that there was out there. So if it was new, it could do this. He wanted it. Sounds a bit dangerous. Oh, oh it was. It was. Um, but one of our guys was actually in the Air Force. He was stationed with us. And he went down one of our Navy destroyers up into the Black Black Sea and uh, had a, a bit of an encounter, shall I say, uh, with our uh, with the comrades. Um, so that that was highly classified for, for quite a long time. But we talk about that all the time. Uh, and... Can you tell me anything about that incident? Well, we were, the American destroyer was in the Black Sea, which enough is enough, you know, put it close enough to the, to, to Russia at the time. And uh, one of their destroyers decided to come out and pay them a visit. And they got a bit too close for comfort. <laughs> so, I think I might have seen footage of, mm -hmm. of this where there's a, they actually are in contact with each other. Yes. Yeah. I'll dig that out on YouTube, and yeah. we'll we'll be sharing that as part of the <laughs> um, the show notes. I think I am familiar with the with the incident. Well, I mean, that goes with the co goes back with the Cold War of playing cat and mouse and teasing the enemy and their capabilities. There, Russia and China and and us in the UK, we're doing it back and forth to see what the capabilities are of your opponent, and then what you can do is you can exploit the weaknesses and hopefully get the upper hand. And so you, you you said that you were the the operation in Spain was was checking the military readiness. That's mm -hmm. the military readiness of the U.S. forces in Europe, or was it looking at the opposition as well, the comrades, as you fondly mm -hmm. call them? It was everybody's. Um, when the, the daily briefing went out, uh, and the daily briefing was giving locations of ships uh, and last known. Uh, contact and tracking of enemy aircraft because you can't aircraft move so fast it's very very quick but we can say that this particular guy took off from here and went to there or uh, last known uh, location of this particular sh Russian ship was here and the type of ship it was and the name of the ship uh, and we also knew uh, the the uh, the way the Russians try to disguise their ships, and I think they still do it today, so I won't go any further. But it is interesting to try to keep track of them. Yeah, yeah. So what what year was that that you were there? It was 1986 to 1988. Okay, okay. Because I was I, I was almost hoping you were there in 1983 because I was mm. I'm always fascinated by Abel Archer, mm. and you know that I I hear stories around that the. the that the Soviets were taking this seriously. There were planes at the end of runways and things mm. like that. I don't know whether you can shed any light on that. Well, 1983, I was still on the USS Ranger uh, out of San Diego, California, and then I transferred to the Second Pentagon. But that was a time when everybody was on edge. 
that was a time that we, the U.S. realized that we need to keep an airplane in the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, for uh, surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. So then the Russians doing what they were doing would not surprise me. As we were on a Spanish, as we were in Spain, it was a Spanish naval base, and they were flying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, testing their capabilities. Because uh, everybody's got their right to their own sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah, because in 83, uh, I know the U.S. were doing exercises in almost the Soviet equivalent of the Black Sea mm -hmm. near Japan and were flying towards the Soviet coast to mm -hmm. test out, you know, waiting for the Soviets yep. to switch on their, their, their radar. And the Soviets were doing similar That's similar right. things to us. But obviously mm -hmm. then there was the KAL 007 mm -hmm. That's right. shoot down where the Soviets say they thought it was a, a U.S. surveillance aircraft. That's right. I mean, what, what's your view? Do you think that is, is just a, it was just a screw up at the end of it? Or, or were the, the, the US were flying flights like that close to the Soviet Union? And. Well, there was one time one of our uh, military surveillance planes um, that uh, had to make an emergency landing someplace. And uh, there was a big hoopla. Oh, was it planned? Are they spying on us and this? I'm sure surveillance flights went back and forth between all the countries. Again, it's to test the capabilities. If you send a military airplane out, people are going to know that's a military airplane and what they're doing. That's that's covert. Uh, that's overt. But if you do use a civilian airliner, that's covert, and that's how you get your information. Uh, it 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 is. It might have been just a trigger happy guy at the end of the radar system that didn't wait for a response back from the KAL, or maybe KAL didn't respond as they should have, and they were getting close to, to airspace. The airspace and sea borders are always touchy subjects, especially in that neck of the world. A lot of people believe in the 12-mile limit, but a lot of people also only believe in the three-mile limit. And you see that right now in the South China Sea. That that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Again, I overuse the word interesting mm -hmm. in this podcast, but uh, I never fail to be fascinated mm -hmm. by the stories from some of my guests. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're working in that completely unpronounceable acronym in yeah. Spain <laughs> until um, eighty eight. That is correct. Um, and uh, I stayed in Spain, but went to another place that flew the antiquated uh, EA three B Sky Warrior surveillance planes. Um, and, uh, they went, again, this was during the, the end of the Cold War, uh, but they were up there flying, doing their things. Um, they had two different types of airplanes, but they went all over the place. Uh, none of the planes are flying anymore. They're just too old. They've taken them out. In fact, the, the squadron has been decommissioned. Again, net very, very high security clearance. So I was there for two years. During that time, um, I got married to my current wife, and my little daughter was born at uh, in Spain. Okay. Does she claim Spanish citizenship, or does it not work that way in Spain? Well, she probably could have, but uh, she's got an American and British passport, uh, and uh, she chose to go that route. Yeah. That's probably enough nationalities to uh, okay. to deal with there. Um, so, you know, when the Berlin Wall falls, mm -hmm. what what do you see from your position in, in terms of, you know, you're looking at the readiness of, of mm -hmm. Soviet and Warsaw Pact forces. What, what are you seeing at that point? Well, the operations tempo, I would have thought, had been, been reduced because the, the the world opened up, for a better, for lack of a better term. But speaking with my colleagues, it actually increased because now we get to see the capabilities of the other side in the open. Uh, and now you might have the great influx of espionage created because of all the people coming from back and forth. So the, uh, the operations tempo actually increased quite a bit during that time. Uh, it spiked, I think is, it would be the proper term. I was in Spain at the time, so I wasn't, I remember seeing it on the TV. Um, but yeah, these, these guys said, yeah, the, op, the ops tempo in increased quite a bit. Because, you know, obviously, uh, 
I spoke to uh, an RAF pilot who mm. saw the the MiG-29 come to his airbase in Scotland for mm. an air show. So NATO was getting a real up-close look at this this tech. In In your view, were some of the fears overly emphasized about the capabilities of Warsaw Pact forces? I don't know if we overemphasized them, but the technology at that point, the Russian technology, was behind the American technology and, and the British technology. So when these air shows came about, of course, we got a glint of what they had in store uh, and their capabilities. But if you also take a look at the, the, the Russian philosophy, the Soviet Union philosophy of their navy was we're going to stay in port and we're going to be ready to deploy at a, at a moment's notice. The U.S. philosophy is we're going to deploy and be there then and there. Uh, and yes, it's a bit more wear and tear on the ships, but we're already forward deployed. The Russians weren't that way. They, they believed, well, when something happens, we'll send somebody. And their state of readiness wasn't the greatest because if you don't use something, it doesn't, it, when you need to use it, it doesn't work. So we, we were constantly on the lookout, constantly deployed and constantly looking at what was going on. And when the Berlin Wall fell, we did see, uh, uh, all of a sudden we saw some other ships started leaving and, um, going out and exploring and we went out to look at their capabilities and realized, Oh, wait a minute. This is something that we possibly something that we missed. And if you take a look at some of the Russian fighter planes, they look a lot like the Western fighter planes because of reverse technology. And these air shows certainly helped them out as it helped us out. So we knew their capabilities. Were you using some of the information from uh, units like the U.S. Military Liaison Unit in East Germany and Bricksmiths in, in some of these assessments? As, as much as we could, yes. Now, we, the British government and the American government have this special relationship, so we do share data. We share a lot more data between us than, we would sh than America, let's say, would share with Turkey. Um, and we're very careful on our contracts with who we're going to sell our weapon systems to. And just of late, um, we were going to pull out of a contract to sell uh, our new airplanes to Turkey because at the same time they bought the Russian defense systems. And then they said, no, you're not going to do that because that would know our capabilities so the Russians can build and you can build a system to take out our planes. And we're not going to do that. And it's all, it's all cat and mouse. Yeah, yeah. So did you leave the, um, the Navy in 88? No, in 1988, uh, I transferred to that squadron in oh. Spain that I was telling you yeah. about, a, a Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron 2. Uh, then in 1990, uh, I transferred to one of our uh, amphibious assault ships out of Norfolk, Virginia, the USS Saipan. Um, it handled boats, it took small boats, helicopters, Harrier airplanes, and we the first place we deployed to from Norfolk, Virginia, was into Kuwait City. And we were the first ship to pull into Kuwait City after the first Gulf War hostilities stopped. So we were there for that, and uh, we floated around that area for quite some time. The next time we went on deployment, we went up into the Adriatic, and this was when Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina were kicking off. And our ship was involved with the rescuing of a downed American U.S. pilot. And the Harriers on board that. So I was on there from 90 to 93 out of Norfolk, Virginia. So did you say you were involved in a rescue of a downed U.S. Me airplane? personally, no, but the ship was. Yeah. Uh, and the Harrier airplanes provided close air support uh, while the rescue teams went in and got this guy. Yeah, because I've... Sadly, I've seen, I can't remember the name of the film, but there's a, there's a film set in the Yugoslav Civil War mm. with a downed U.S. pilot, mm. and it's quite a famous actor in it. Um, I'll have to look that one up. Uh, I'll, I'll email it oh, yeah. to you. Um, you'll probably completely pull it apart and say it's good. Gene Hackman <laughs> is the uh, naval commander, and he's sort of like, we're going to go in and mm. get our guy. And, you know, it's one of those gung-ho. You sure that wasn't uh, Crimson Tide? 
No. <laughs> it, well, that, that is the role that he plays in almost every, yeah, yeah. well, not almost every film. I'm doing him a great disservice there. So, Gene, if you're listening, you're a great actor in every role. Um, but um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but I'll, um, I'll uh, drop you an email. I'll let you know what, what, what that is. Um, so is that your, your final posting? Actually, no. From there, I did have enough time in service to retire. Uh, but I didn't think I personally, I didn't feel it was the right time to retire. So the Navy gave me uh, the following options to go to Hawaii, Sigonella, Sicily, uh, back to Rota, Spain, or uh, there were five jobs available in London, England. So I said, Oh, I think I'll go to London being my wife, British and never, never been stationed there. And my in-laws were here uh, in Manchester so I accepted those orders and arrived here December of 93. Uh, mid-1995, I got my final promotion. And then in January 1998 is when I retired. I had enough. That's uh, quite a, a length of service there mm-hmm. as well. But some really interesting mm-hmm. roles there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, some really interesting mm-hmm. roles. It uh, The place in London was called commander-in-chief U.S. Naval Forces Europe. And the building was uh, Eisenhower's headquarters during World War II. I think I know the, I know the square it's on because there's a, there's a plaque yeah. out, out, exactly. outside there. Well, it's now uh, luxury apartments. But um, it was the lease, I think, was 99 pounds a year. So it was really ridiculous. But it was because of the economics of the place, it was getting too expensive to keep us there. The rent was cheap, but it was the support and everything else. So eventually they closed down and moved everybody to, uh, I think it was Naples, Italy. And that whole building and the whole support network has, has since been shut down. Yeah. Yeah. And that was it. So if, if you look back at your Cold War career, mm. Jay, what, what's, what would you say is your most fondest memory? Wow. That's, that's, uh, I think it was going to places that I'd never been to before and also learning about the capabilities of the U.S. forces and learning some of the capabilities of our allies because of the roles that I was in. I was able to do that. And, and wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to a lot of these places if it wasn't for the military. And this, don't worry, this is my last question, this one, Jay. But um, looking back back again i mean what what was what would you say was the most surprising thing that you experienced in your career that you thought wow i never knew that or that was really unexpected uh well of course not knowing about the alternate pentagon didn't know that was there that even existed um and the other thing that amazed me was actually the logistics on how we kept our ships supplied. There is no Tesco's, there is no Sainsbury's or anybody else like that in the middle of the ocean. So how do you get your spare parts out there? How do you get your food out there? And how we can survive out there? The longest we were out to sea without hitting port was two months. And you don't have two months worth of food out there. So you had the exercise of getting everything out there and how we did it, and how we did it professionally, and how we as the United States and you as the United Kingdom do it the same way we do, how well we do it as compared to some of the other countries that um, don't have the same capabilities. Yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was really good. I mean, the most favorite place was Spain. I was there for a total of six years. Absolutely loved it. And I think, I think you're right. I think logistics is one of the... Is a lot of people see mm. it as a boring subject, mm. but without that, there's no way an army can fight. Right. I mean, it, it's 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 absolute backbone, mm-hmm. stomach, you know, what what whatever. Mm. Um, and it it yeah, I mean, it's incredible to be able to su- to sustain a mission mm. on a ship for for two months. Mm. Well, if you look at World War II, what were the RAF's targets in Germany? They weren't the troops; it was the supply line. You look at the U-boats in the Atlantic. What were they after? They were after the supply ships. And we did the same thing. The U.S. did the same thing in the Pacific. Yes, we wanted to, to, to knock out the, the troops, but we also targeted the supply line. Uh, and once you do that, you're pretty much going to starve people out 
uh, out of their stores and their um, their supplies. You look at the Middle East, uh, Masada, uh, back in biblical times, they just blocked the supply lines. And this is what brings people, the forces down. It's not the manpower, it's the lack of food supplies or whatever. Absolutely. Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story on Cold War Conversations. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Anytime. If you'd like to learn more about the subjects covered in this episode, do visit our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app or visit coldwarconversations.com. If you like what you're listening to, you can really help us by leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts, our Facebook page, or with your favorite podcast app. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners, just like you, continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram where we are at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information